This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, all the feels, widening the appeal of your writing with emotive moments. <laughs> okay, cards on the tables, guys. Um, I realise this sounds like, in fact, it sounds very unlikely for something that I would have suggested, but I did suggest it. <laughs> yeah, this isn't on me, guys. <laughs> so this is me, um, and I will explain as we go along, and then you will see. But basically, I was reading a book, and I realised that there's nothing strange about that at all, but it did get me thinking. Um, <laughs> partly what I was thinking is the fact that, yes, I have specific genres I like, but I will mostly try, at least, everything. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I will absolutely love something, even though it's in a genre that generally I, I even hate. Yeah. Um, and it's a case of why does that example work for me? And it, I just got thinking about that. And anyway, during reading and long drives and long long runs and things, um, all the pieces started to come together. And I thought this would be a really interesting thing to discuss. Hmm. Um, what is it exactly that makes readers follow a writer across genres? And this was the other thing that really crystallised it for me was the fact that um, without without wanting to like humble brag or anything, but I have a few readers who have come to my urban fantasy type work from historical fiction. And I think mm. some of them definitely read cross genre anyway, but some of them from what they've been saying very clearly don't. They, they just followed it because I wrote it and I've been terrible at producing more historical fiction lately. <laughs> so it's kind of like, well, urban fantasy isn't really my sort of thing, but you wrote it and you're not writing anything else right now, and so we'll lump it kind of thing. And actually it turned out to be quite enjoyable. And I'm like, so what have I provided you there that's made you think that even in a genre you wouldn't normally read, you'll read mm. that because I wrote it? Because it's, be- it's not me being an awesome writer. There are better writers out there. <laughs> so um that's and and that that reflection of the reader perspective from me being the writer and me being the reader from looking at other writers made me think about many many things and what i came to the conclusion of is that there are specific things that we might not consciously look for in the stories we want to read mm. but if they're there it helps keep us engaged so this is kind of a slightly more organic exploration of that idea in theory (laughs) so um yes i mean there's lots of contributing factors um stephen king writes in many many genres i mean when you think about marketing stephen king you're marketing stephen king himself very specifically himself you're not marketing stephen king writer of horror necessarily because he also writes Believe it or not, he writes romances, science fiction, fantasy. Um, he's even got a little bit of urban fantasy out there. He writes short stories. He writes stuff that has no supernatural content whatsoever. He writes thrillers and chillers and suspense. Um, in in all honesty, he is a marketer's nightmare because he will not stick to one genre. And yet it works. And the yeah. reason it works is because there are things that he carries across every single type of genre he works in. Mm. 
and I think that's you know that's kind of why I I will read pretty much anything he writes or at least I'll give it a go I might not love it but I'll, I'll give it a go yeah and there are other authors like that as well so I mean people will follow you for things like style um, subject matter you know particularly if you have viewpoints and things that you like to explore in lots of different ways and different formats etc and that's something that pe- resonates with people they will go with it mm. um, your type of prose perhaps you you write in a way that is uniquely accessible to them yeah um, your characterization <laughs> but the big one is the feel-good factor believe it or not and yes I realize there is a certain amount of irony in me saying that <laughs> But just as long as you've recognized that <laughs> i recognize it i own it um but you know what i am not immune to it either so we are going to talk about the feel good factor today yes okay <laughs> <laughs> it's it's quite interesting jules coming up with this because obviously i'm also one of the one of the people who's fo- followed her across across genre now i do read across genre anyway um, but it, it's one of those things where, for some reason, Jules has just totally, somehow has captured everything that I want in in certain sort of series or things like that. It's like she just, she knows, she knows what I want. <laughs> and so, like, when Jules suggested this episode, I was like, I'd actually like to know how this witchcraft works. <laughs> so- <laughs> you say that, but you do it as well. <laughs> <laughs> why thank you <laughs> um but but yes actually as as writers this is something that it's useful to know that you're actually doing it and what you're doing because mm. i didn't really realize until i sat down and really kind of worked it out um and as readers i think it's interesting for you to be able to more easily identify things that you will like and not like um by this very process i mean if you think about it millions of books come out every every week every year yeah Um, so there'll be something for you and being able to identify very quickly what you're likely to like is is a time saver definitely it 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 really is yes particularly Um, if you read as much as jules does yes um i am what is known as a whale reader um basically (laughs) i you know if i had a, a few you know i what every indie author wants is a series of whale readers these are people who will read voraciously um in their favorite genres and across multiple genres Mm. and they will pretty they find an author they like and they will read everything that author produces because they like that author yeah kind of thing um you can you can get by it very comfortably on an income from from whale readers and a few other readers as well um, this is what we all want. This is what we all strive for, ultimately. We're <laughs> hoping to make a sort of financial career type thing out of this. Um, so, yes, if you end up with me as a fan, there's a good chance I will read everything that you've written. Can Not confirm. always. <laughs> <laughs> Not always. Depends. Yeah. Okay, so how does the feel-good factor affect genre? Hmm. Well... That's the thing. The most successful books and series are those, you know, those that have even modest breakout success or modest mm. breakout hits um, tend to incorporate a few universal themes and attributes. Um, this is kind of, it's not just fairy tales, but if we say like the fairy tale appeal, the reason fairy tales still work now is because the themes are universal. Mm, and yeah. when people retell fairy tales, they work because the author has understood the themes. 
they don't work when the author has not understood and re-delivered those original themes and attributes, generally. <laughs> Sorry. I'm laughing because I can feel you thinking of certain things and I'm not going to say it. But... I am not. I'm, I'm actually deliberately not thinking those things because this is all about the feel-good stuff. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, you know, even... I wouldn't say I was... Um, believe it or not, I'm actually quite an optimistic person. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> I can feel Madeline trying not to laugh. <laughs> I, I generally am. I may... I'll say what I think and I may sound jaded, but I'm actually not especially. I've got a lot of optimism and things for the future. I I Mm. try to see the best in people and situations. And yes, you will get the odd cynical aside because that's how I bleed off my my continuing unending rage um, with humanity (laughs) as a whole. But, you know, don't let that poison you into thinking that i am generally pessimistic because i'm i'm really not i'm you know quite engaged with life um but even someone like me who uh you know like both dragons actually we 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 like torturing our characters and by Mm. extension our readers yes and again telling it like it is there so sorry about that But if all we did was torture our characters and deliver unremitting bleakness story after story, we wouldn't have any readers after a while. Because even the most jaded cynic, and I'm not a jaded cynic, um, doesn't want to read 500 pages of unrelenting misery and desperation without even a small spark of hope. Uh, And, you know, I've got examples for this later on. But, yeah, basically even people who are you know think they want to read stylistically very dark stuff Mm. people who want to read grimdark again i'm one of them uh people who want to read lovecraftian very bleak horror type stuff again i'm one of them um don't want it with with no sparks of light in there at all and you would not keep your readers very long if all you ever delivered was and then everybody died every single time yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's one of those things which is that, you know, even with the understanding with the rules of, of tragedy, there does need to be catharsis of some kind. Yes. You know? Um, and no one... And, and, you know, as much as the Greeks loved tragedy, they didn't just have tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> like, they liked other things too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so anyway, I'm going to talk very briefly about the king's knight just because i did a lot of what i did with the king's knight out of a desire to obviously i wanted to write historical but i was commissioned to write it and i was commissioned to write these three books um within the time frame that they were set so Mm. i had parameters put on me before i even started the books and within those parameters i wanted to be as creative as i could be which meant I wanted there to be humour. I wanted there to be funny bits. Mm -hmm. Because this, if you look, they could have been incredibly bleak. If you think about it, the first book deals with the peasant's revolt. If you really dig into that, that's not a great time to be alive. You've you've had the Black Death. Half of England's population is dead. Um, There is massive upheaval between the aristocracy and monarchy and the lower classes there's intrigue you have a child on the th- on the throne mm. we're losing the war with france at that point in time 
um, which has been going, this war has been going on for like 50 years already. It's not going well. We've lost Normandy or we're about to lose Normandy. And yeah, guess what? There's not enough of a workforce and they want higher wages and we can't afford to pay it without seriously curtailing the freedoms of the aristocracy. And mm. they're not keen on that for some strange reason. For I, mean, I, I can't yes. think why. Um, the church is not keen on like, taking a cut in their income either. Surprise, uh, surprise. <laughs> yeah, and th- there's there's all this stuff there. It could have been an incredibly bleak book that was, you know, unrelentingly miserable. And yet I think it's kind of come across as a relatively light heart to jaunt with a fair bit of bloodshed. Yes. <laughs> Is that a reasonable description? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's a reasonable description. <laughs> and then you've got... The second book, Treason, which deals with the merciless parliament, that's horrible. That That is literally one of the most horrible um, moments in English history in terms of, you know, the upper classes against the monarchy. It was incredibly unstable. And then finally, in the third book, you, you've got the deposition of Richard II by his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke, um, and, you know, we can look at it from our perspective now, but at the time, that was literally like someone going against God. Yeah. It was the fact that the country had turned against him to that extent, the fact that he, Richard, had, you know, Richard had quite probably was suffering from some sort of psychosis brought about by PTSD, which is understandable considering everything he'd been through. Yeah. Um, but they didn't have terms for that. And... I'm sorry, but the the monarch doesn't have the luxury, as as George the Third was to learn later, many centuries later, of of a being or appearing mad. No, it's just it, it's it's not good. The the country is stable if the king is stable, kind of thing, particularly in the 1400s. So, yeah, again, could have been a really really bleak and gory book, and instead was. Okay. Oh, well, it, it's the I was going to say it is, it's it's still quite gory, but it's still uh... quite gory. It's the least light-hearted of the three, but it's still got enough light-hearted moments. So, what got me thinking was, yeah, the people, the one, the people who didn't like the King's Night series, are the people who I think wanted either a, a historical romance, and that's not what I was writing. So you're in the yeah. wrong place, guys. Sorry about that. Um, or the ones who really wanted a big, meaty historical tome that was very gritty and very much about, you know, how bad things were. They wanted to escape mm. to a time that was worse than it is now, I think. And yeah. A, I didn't feel that it was in many ways because, yeah, okay, we're not bringing the monarch's friends up in front of him and forcing him to sit there silent while we execute them. But our political system is nothing to boast about right now. No. <laughs> um, it's just a different type of, of bad in many ways. And I, I, you know, I want historical fiction to be funny because guess what? People back then laughed as well. They still found things ridiculous. There was still humour. They still lived day-to-day lives. They still ha- fell in love. They still had children. They still had personal family tragedies and things. They were people. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And again, I think that's probably also one of the reasons why I liked the book. Yeah. Was because 
of what I want from fiction um, doesn't tend to actually be anything which is that bleak. I know you wouldn't have thought so with considering the kind of stuff that I write, <laughs> but yeah. I actually really don't like bleak fiction at all. Yeah, it's... Um, so that was the thing, and it was, for me, the whole, the whole experience of writing The King's Knight was balancing the very real and gritty and, and bleak against these moments of humanity mm. and i'm saying moments of humanity but ultimately what they are is feel-good moments yes. so whenever you've got a bit of banter between chaucer and gregory for example whenever cuthbert does something that's a tiny bit endearing or a lot endearing depending on how <laughs> tiny much like. bit please <laughs> or on what you think of cuthbert whenever you've got gregory sort of defiantly Gregory is the most unknight-like knight, I think, mm. in many ways. In terms of the time he's been written in, he's anachronistic. People like him now. He's very accessible to a modern audience, but he yeah. is a terrible knight for the time. He does not follow the knightly code at all. No. He follows what we think the knightly code was. Um, and I found that really enjoyable. But again, it's feel-good moments. You're rooting for him because he's someone you want to root for. And i that's what got me thinking about this episode ultimately in the end, on top of everything else. My, my thought process, I've just basically given you a rundown of my thought process. Um, <laughs> it's the feel-good moments. And yes, I have similar feel-good moments in my urban fantasy series, my supernatural suspense series as well. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll go into more detail about that. But continuing this... What it basically boils down to is that regardless of genre, most readers, the vast majority of re readers are casual readers. Mm. Um, they're not specifically, consciously, and that's the important word, searching for specific genre tropes or even specific genres. They're looking for a type of story. Yes. Yeah, I would completely agree with you. And it's why actually a good story can hook pretty much everybody in. Yeah. even if it's not within a genre that you tend to read. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I've, the number of times Alan said, hey, do you, I, I'd really like to watch this, but it might not be your thing. And I'm like, well, you know, tell me a good story. Mm -hmm. And afterwards he'll have said, "Did you know, I didn't think you'd enjoy that. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't have picked it up to watch myself, but it told a good story. I can appreciate that about it. Yeah. And it's that sort of... And occasionally there'll be one where I'm absolutely gripped. It was... Um, Adam Driver in the report Alan actually said well I think that should have been 40 minutes shorter and I'm like really I was absolutely on the edge of my seat for the entire thing because it was this the, the dense political machinations of this guy unravelling what happened at Guantanamo Bay and it was horrible um, but it was a good story and it had these moments of humanity that I'm talking about I wouldn't mm. say they were necessarily feel good but they were definitely human moments yeah so so there you go. And it wouldn't be something that I would have gone, yeah, that that's my jam right there. And yet yeah. then there have been other things where I've gone, that should have been my jam. And yet I put it on my bread and it was like, <laughs> it, was, it was very much not jam. It was not something I wanted to eat. We're really going with this metaphor, huh? I, I'm abusing this metaphor at this point. I should put the metaphor down and promise not to hurt it ever again, really. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, there, there is that 
Uh, and it goes for series two. So a good, well thought out series will present the same emotional wound in the main character in every book, but gently escalated. So, for example, in Harry Potter, mm-hmm. because it's an easy example, um, you're being told the same sort of story in every single book, but escalated. And the story is one of abandonment and acceptance. Yeah. And if you think about it, I mean, I have to say a couple of books, but obviously abandoned, not deliberately by his parents, but abandoned very deliberately in in many ways by his close relatives he's left with and then finds this wizarding world that accepts him. And then in the second book, uh, assumed to be the heir of Slytherin, abandoned by this wizarding world and yet then accepted by it. And it, it climbs the ladder every single book. Um, when you boil it down like that, you're kind of like, my God, how did you get a seven book series out of the same emotional wound? <laughs> but you do. And that is absolutely what you do. And I realised that was something that I was also doing as well in, in my series. So uh, so there you go. I'm giving away trade secrets here. I'm not sure how people realise that, that this is how you keep a series going so that it doesn't feel tired. I mean, that everything's got its stopping point and you do have to stop when you get there, but... Yeah, yeah. But this, <laughs> yeah, when you can't escalate without it seeming like you are literally someone jumping a shark, <laughs> then, then yes, um, it's, time to, it's time to stop, really. It's gone as far as it can go. <laughs> Let it die. Let it die. Let it die. Let it death. die. <laughs> yeah, don't stay at the party too long. um but yeah so final thoughts on this particular segment um you have career readers who are diehard in a genre and they might be attracted to your books and then you'll have omnivorous readers who like several different genres they aren't really diehard in any of them but again they're slightly more discerning as in they're usually familiar with tropes and things Mm mm-hmm um, and then you, ha- but really, those top two tiers of readers only make up a very minute amount. And because, by necessity, authors spend a relative amount of time on social media talking to other bookish people, you think that actually all your readers are like that. But actually, you're looking at about like two percent. The vocal amount. Yeah. The yeah. ones, the ones who love books so much that they will go online and talk about books. Okay. Yeah. But there are so many people who love books, but don't necessarily want to read like it's a competitive sport and don't necessarily want to go online and talk about them because they're doing other stuff as well and that's where everyone else is they're casual occasional or you know even voracious readers but they're just not they're they're not kind of kind of I don't know, recognise you in public kind of <laughs> this thing. Is, this, is, this is the the thing that always gets me, which is whenever whenever I'm talking to my... I want to talk to my dad about books, it's very it's a very different experience to when I used to talk to my mother about books because the way that we consume media is so, is so different. Yeah. Where he'll be like, yeah, I enjoyed it. And I'll be like, so who was your favourite character? He's like, I didn't really have a favourite character. And I'm <laughs> just, the, you know, like, I'm there. I'm like, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. And he's like, yeah, it was good. <laughs> and I should say, my dad reads an incredible amount and he reads across <laughs> genres. He's been a, a you know, a, a ferocious reader all of his life. I mean, he he just reads so much and he reads quickly. Um and he reads an incredible, you know, 
different amount. He loves finding new things and trying new things. Um, so this isn't, he, he's not what you would term to be casual um, in that regard, but just the way that he happens to consume <laughs> this type of stuff is completely different from the way that I do it um, and completely different to the way that a lot of fans um, and a lot of uh, sort of very vocal readers do it. Um, and yet he's the one who's, he probably reads more than I do every year. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a bit like my dad. My dad reads a lot. I won't say he reads more than me, um, but he reads a Nobody lot. Nobody reads more than you. <laughs> um, and you can get into a good book conversation with my dad, but he is also kind of, this is very much, it's a hobby. It's an interest for him. He likes to always have a book on the go. He's, But he sticks to his main sort of three three genres yeah and he isn't really familiar with tropes and things so i mean this isn't really surprising but i think because we're writers we at a certain point there's a turning point and there's no going back once you're past it yeah where you start to read very analytically and it's very difficult to switch it off it's mm. difficult to switch it off when you're watching a film or anything else and that's fine that's something you actually kind of need but you forget that other readers are just reading for entertainment. <laughs> yeah. They're not reading to analyse everything. They're not reading looking for plot holes or ways characters could be made better. They're reading <laughs> for the entertainment factor because it's fun. Yeah. Um, so I, it's it's gotta be said that the partners, you know, of of writers, if if you if you have one, put up with a lot. They really do. They really do. They really do. Um, so basically, if you ever want a book to be breakout successful, you need to be able to appeal not just to the people who are looking very specifically and analytically at tropes, you know, the diehards, um, not just at the people who are omnivorous, um, not even at the voracious but less vocal lot, but you want to kind of get the, the casual readers and the and the occasional readers on board too. Mm. Um, how do you do that? Well, the good news is it's comparatively easy. So this is where we get into the most unlikely subject that Jules will ever probably broach. Um, <laughs> right, so I've written Feel Your Feelings, but basically this is, this is what I was talking about. It's really easy as a writer to lose sight of why most people read. Most people are looking for some form of escapism. They are not predominantly looking to be educated, tantalised with clever ideas or literary prose, ex especially at the expense of a story or to consciously satisfy certain genre cravings. I mean, consciously, uh, they may not be aware that that's what they're after. Yeah. Um, and that's that's fine. That That's not denigrating anyone who reads and, and isn't thinking about genre tropes all the way through. No. Um, that, that's, uh, in fact, that's a normal way to read. Writers read in quite an abnormal way when you think about it. Yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what they're looking for is an experience that makes them feel different to how they currently feel. It's the same reason you'd sit down maybe and watch a film or a series or, or what have you. Mm. It's a diff forming a different type of connection. It's having a different type of experience. Um, so that's where the feel-good moments come in. Um, I'd like to take this, <laughs> this point to say that when I say feel-good moments or moments of humanity, I'm not saying sentiment. Yeah we're on slightly different territory there yeah um on the other hand your mileage may vary on this because i'm not a big romance reader 
really no mm. actually at all at all at all <laughs> at all and an awful lot of commercial women's fiction and romance to me when it does its moments of humanity its feel-good moments to me it comes across as gaggingly sweet and kind of very sentimental but i'm not the target audience and no. for the target audience those moments are exactly what they want that those are those those are the things that will make them look for that sort of story yeah absolutely um and this is also you know when you are writing if you are writing very specifically when you're thinking you know for instance if i was writing for jewels i probably wouldn't add those kinds of things but that would be because i was very consciously writing for jewels yeah if that makes sense um and it's why it's always a good idea to kind of know your audience um even if you're trying to sort of appeal to a wide range um recognizing what particular people within the demographic might be looking for is important so we're not saying disregard that because that would not be wise at no. all no definitely <laughs> just like we're saying we're not saying obviously disregard genre tropes you still need your genre tropes it's just yeah. that if you want to get a wider audience it's not mm -hmm. just about the genre tropes it's about adding these moments of humanity yes which we keep absolutely. saying um, and we will get into some examples in a moment and you'll go, oh, that's what you're talking about. Because when you, when someone points it out to you, it's really, really obvious. It's just that it's not something that I've ever really seen talked about with any other writers anywhere. So either they're all really good and they're doing it subconsciously or people haven't really considered that maybe this is, this is what causes the breakout success type thing. Yeah. Um, also, I'd say... Just as you wouldn't stick an entire canister of salt in soup, um, don't stick an entire canister of feel-good moments on your story. Don't drown your story in it. it. It's a seasoning, if you see what I mean. Yep. I'm really bad with the metaphors today. <laughs> I apologise. No, no, it's working. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Sprinkle the feel-good human, human moments over, lightly over, and bring to a light bring boil. To a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Simmer gently. <laughs> yes. So anyway. um, don't try and story. Okay. So how do you add the feel good moments? Well, this is again um, your mileage may vary thing because your idea of a feel good moment, a moment of humanity, might be very different from someone else's. I am never. Okay, never's a strong word. I am almost never going to be moved by a big proposal scene in anything. Because I'm just not that way inclined. <laughs> Boo. but it depends um if you give me characters i'm really invested in if you manage to deliver it in a quirky way with some gentle humor i might be sat there going oh it's so lovely um and that's just one of those things it's like on the very rare occasions alan and i will watch uh, romantic comedies which isn't very often at all really but every so often quite often Alan will be there going oh it's really sweet that's so lovely and looks at me and goes you're just dead inside why are you not reacting to this at all? Like, it's just like it's fine it's, it's, it's just happening kind of <laughs> so again your mileage may vary but let's look at a few things where you can do this and you can almost guarantee there'll be a feel-good human moment if you add a little bit of this in so yes um for my first one I've got friendship interactions that don't affect the main plot 
um, a while back, Madeline and I did an episode that talked about tropes that we liked. And one of the things that I said I particularly liked was when you have two characters forming a really good, strong friendship that isn't part of the main plot. So this is clearly a moment of humanity for me. So for example, um, Buffy and Tara in Buffy the Vampire Slayer becoming mm. friends in their own right really, really worked for me. And it made the series stronger, even though there was no real reason for it to happen. Yeah. Absolutely. I I mean it is I mean this is this is such a prevalent thing that 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 it's the whole bromance thing as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean it, it it depends really, but yeah, you could say um Bashir and Bashir uh, Bashir and Miles or Bashir and Garrick to be honest, though I would say that's more romance. Um <laughs> Yeah, I think we watched it recently. I was kind of like, I don't believe you and Esri at all. I do believe you and Garrick. <laughs> the writers pulled back. I feel they pulled back, or they were made to pull back. But yeah, Bashir and Miles, you're kind of like, they're not. I mean, they're no more main characters than the other main officers and things. Yeah, um, and their friendship is important, but it it it's not the pivot by which the wheel turns, is it? It's kind no. of. It, it, yeah, it, it is this classic bromance type thing, and it's the, the, them going off and doing their their war recreations in the holodeck and things. Again, not yeah. really important to the plot, but you feel yeah. so connected to them because you they do. do these things. It's kind of like, oh, it's nerd night, and all the D and D gang have got together. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is, and uh, and it's just, and the thing is, like, yes, it's played for humour. But it's it's not played like a we don't understand their their relationship or anything like that. It's like no, we absolutely do. And their wives are just they're like go on go, <laughs> and they're like yes, <laughs> yes. Here we go. I'm an Alamo widow again, kind of thing. Or is it? <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> it's the fact that they always pick lost causes to go and die glorious deaths in every yeah. single time, and. I don't know. You get a lot of that. That's something that the good Star Trek series really nailed down. I wonder how consciously that was done or whether it was just a case of the writers went, we love these characters and we like them doing this and we are allowed a little bit of this. So this is our chocolate kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, I also think that we get an element of this also with with Data, for example. Yeah. Um, Data and Geordie have got this really, really lovely... Well, I mean, to be honest, Data has a great relationship with pretty much everybody <laughs> in the series. But it's like Data and Riker. Um, you would not expect... You would not expect those two, but they, but, but Riker, I mean, again, along with everybody, he's becomes very attached to Data. They all become really attached to Data. And it, it's... There's nothing strange about it. It's just that these people are all friends, and yeah. I like that. <laughs> it's it's some of the best moments are the tiny little throwaway segments. Like I think it's in First Contact where where Riker has his beard shaved off because Diana wants him to get rid of it, and um, he goes past and Data looks at him, and Riker kind of goes smooth as an android's behind, eh? 
<laughs> and sort of his usual flirtatious manner. And then a bit later on, Data strokes his cheek and goes, mm, nah, shakes his head. <laughs> and it's just kind of like D- Data's sort of understanding humour a little bit more. And it's just, it's perfect. And it's it's not necessary. It's not necessary for that film or that story, but it's so perfect. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, and, and otherwise that's quite a bleak film potentially. I mean, the Borg are going back to destroy human. <laughs> to destroy the evolution of humanity (laughs) i mean that's the thing is that this is this is it because i don't really like sci-fi um this is something that everybody everybody knows um who's been sort of listening to the the show (laughs) i'm not a big sci-fi fan at all um and i tend to avoid it but i have loved watching all of the um of the star treks because of this because of that humanity and the relationships and you know the interpersonal kind of parts of it these are the things that i like the most yeah yeah definitely um so other ways to add feel-good moments animals and animal companions this sounds like i'm being really trite but the number (laughs) of times um i you know, I, it's no secret that I like animals and possibly I like them a bit more than I like people. Um, so animals creep into my work a lot anyway, just generally. But I mean, think about it. Have you ever seen a Disney film that didn't have an animal in it somewhere? Because Walt Disney loved animals. Um, by all accounts, he was not a great human being, but he loved animals. Yes. Um, so animals show up in his work a lot and people identify with that because all of us, well, not all of us, but a great many of us feel the same way so just by um you know having i i always said that i gave gregory's horse too much personality in the first book but everyone loved it yeah and everyone was kind of like <laughs> drum, no, drum drum is, great. is a fantastic i was like that was the other thing is that i i can't actually tell you how happy i was where in later books obviously gregory doesn't have drum anymore because drum has gotten too old but you mentioned the fact that drum is in the field yeah. and i was like yeah drum's enjoying his retirement go you drum <laughs> yeah, drum's enjoying his retirement and fathering many many fine many many fine, fine war horses, horses. <laughs> Um, yeah, and you know, I've within Unveiled, if you go to uh, I Hold the Tide, you've got Toby the Greyhound. There's no real reason for Toby to be in there, mm. except that um, it it tells you something about um, Mr. Sanders' character, that he has got this rescue greyhound. Because he's yeah. not actually a very nice person otherwise. No, he's he's actually quite antagonistic and not very helpful no he's a bit of a dick to be honest yeah um but it's also like you know and and in harker and blackthorn you've obviously got grim yeah um who is just a fantastic um sort of inclusion i think it's like Um, the only time you see rebecca go all gooey about anything it's like over her cat or any of the other animals and I feel like there's parts of you that are coming through there, Jules. Yeah, possibly. Quite possibly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so the whole animals and animal companions thing, there are so many dog lovers and cat lovers out there. Um, if you want... Uh, it's, it's, it's quick, it's easy. You do have to know something about the animal in question. Yeah. Um, but add an animal friend, add a, an animal companion, and have the animal act in concert with, with it whatever species it is yeah 
Um, but yeah, a lot of people will be on board with that and they may not even know why they're on board with it, but it's a case of, oh, there's a dog there, wonderful. Exactly, um, yeah. And oh, I mean, the amount of times where people like, I don't really care who dies in the series as long as the animal lives. Yeah. You know? Um, God, I was a mess. I watched all of Midnight Mass and I was an absolute mess because there is a lot of animal death in the first episode and I'm just kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to watch the rest of this series if they keep killing off all the cats and dogs. <laughs> no. I'm not okay with this. <laughs> and I hadn't even had time to get acquainted with any of them because it's just straight cats. And... Yeah. It's not like the most lovable dog ever, but it's very cute. Um, so yeah, that sort of thing... Again, it's a bit of a, a two-edged sword because if you then need to kill off an animal, you're kind of like in dicey territory. But because yeah. that will be the absolute opposite of a feel-good moment, guys. I it's, promise you, it's it's definitely a way. If you kill off an animal, that's definitely a way of of establishing that someone is a villain. If you want, if you want someone to be hated, make them kill an animal. Like it works every time. Yeah, um, but you may not endear yourself to your. Uh, your audience fair warning (laughs) okay so um acts of kindness as well i think Mm. this is an underrated one and it's another one that it passes by almost unnoticed and yet if it wasn't there people would notice there was something missing Mm. yeah so again it's it's the simple it's the simple little things and quite often it's the simple little things between characters who don't really take centre stage, who may not be the main part, thrust of the plot kind of thing. But it's yeah. like, um, okay, to use one of my own examples again, it's Chaucer pushing his half-finished stew across to Cuthbert, saying what well, he looks like he could use the extra food kind of thing. You know, I, I reread that um, scene yeah. I was rereading. Uh, I was rereading uh, parts of the of the special version that Jules wrote for me. <laughs> I got that makes it sound so dicey. Uh, no, I got I got a special. I got a special book that Jules wrote for me, which is the the King's Knight as told from Cuthbert's point of view <laughs> and his like his his story. And I cannot tell you how much I love it. I've I've reread it so many times. Um, and I was rereading it, and it was, I think it's probably one of the moments is that, like, I'd already, I would already be ready to die for Chaucer um, up until that point. But this is the moment where I just went, I really like this guy who has seen this kid and, first of all, has taken one look at Gregory and, um, <laughs> and Cuthbert and gone, well, that's a father and son if ever there was one. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's just one assessing look and is like, yep. Um, but also it's just the fact that he he shows kindness despite the fact that his position he he doesn't have to he could completely ignore Cuthbert and he doesn't he could have objected to even sitting down at the same table with him I mean it's yeah. a weird thing to sit down with your um, indentured servant but Gregory's unconventional yeah whereas Chaucer could have gone oh, I'm not sitting down with any serf kind of thing but he yeah. doesn't as you say yeah um and i think that that is one of the moments where i'm like i really really like chaucer um because of that gentle moment of kindness and i think particularly in historical fiction 
um, and in any kind of gritty genres, there is so much of it which is just, ah, life is just like that, people are harsh, you've just kind of got to get used to it. Um, and when that's done too much, it just, it loses any kind of sense of impact. Yeah, it dehumanises them. I think the thing is, you should probably have a reason for a character to act cruelly. Yes. You don't need a reason for them to act kindly unless it's out of character for that specific character to do so. <laughs> Even if that character... My favourite thing is that I'm a bad person. Like a, it's like a, I'm not a gentle person, says... <laughs> says Jeff... Says... Um, uh, why have I just forgotten his name? Um, oh, God, I'm having a serious moment. Um, says Gregory, I'm, I'm, you know, mean, I'm, I'm not kind, and come here, boy, I will teach you how to make this fire. <laughs> I mean, I was like, um... <laughs> this is again from um, the villain's tale, which is, which is Madeline, Madeline's it's birthday present Madeline's, from a couple of years ago. Madeline's special book. <laughs> um, but yeah, and uh, I will feed you this this food and I, I and I will yell at you and threaten to sell you and obviously at no point will this ever happen you know what I mean yeah. so <laughs> um so yeah I can appreciate that a lot I completely agree yeah. which uh this that kind of feeds into this another way that you can add feel-good moments which is uh moments of humor slice of life domestic comfort food and ridiculousness so basically your everyday nonsense, really. So when it's, it doesn't have to be wits, whips mark dialogue or anything. Mm. Um, it doesn't have to be like the the joke of the century. It can be just very gently amusing. Um, yeah, it yeah. It doesn't have to be a great piece of wit, and it's like you don't need to describe an entire feast scene. But someone who needs food enjoying a bowl of something is kind of like, yeah, that's a feel good moment. Yeah, and I should say, for anyone who's writing children's fiction, you have to have food in there. Oh god, yeah, absolutely. You can't, you can't not have food in there. But weirdly enough, this is, this is an example of one of the... Um, so in the previous episode, I spoke about BBC Merlin. And one of the reasons I actually really liked BBC Merlin was that every now and again, you would have Merlin make a joke, and Arthur would actually laugh at his joke. Yeah. And for me this was this was a fantastic moment because I had gotten so used to seeing examples where a joke is made and it's just for the audience and you kind of feel like that you can't really enjoy the humor because it it feels so directed and it's not even it's not human in any way because no one you know no one else has heard it. Um, I don't know how to explain, but do you know? Do you know what I'm talking about? That kind of strange sentiment where you're like, uh, it's just, it's meaningless. It's it's you know that this is humour, but it's not actually humour within the story. Yeah, it's there's a sort of hollowness to it. Isn't exactly. There? Yeah, and it was one of my favourite things about the series is that you would you would have Merlin make a joke, um, and Arthur would actually laugh at it. And that, for me, was the moment where I was like, yeah, this is real humanity. This is two people who are often in very dire situations who are actually laughing at each other's jokes. Um, and it didn't feel hollow. It felt real and therefore incredibly enjoyable. Yeah. 
Yeah, so you can't overestimate the importance of a little bit of slice of life in there. And again, it no matter what you're writing, it makes what genre you're writing even, it makes it accessible to the audience as they are now mm, without yeah. necessarily booting them out of the story that they've decided to escape into. Yes. Um, okay, romantic relationships between side characters that don't affect the main plot. Um, this is a huge one. I mean, mm. the number of times people have read an epic fantasy or sci-fi or something and what's kept them going has been uh, two C-list characters who have had this like slightly troubled but very sweet romance on the side. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, the, uh, there was the Red Sister series by Mark Lawrence and the, two of the nuns were involved in that and you don't really see an awful lot of it but it was immensely popular and not just because it was kind of a lesbian relationship but because those books are very they're not it's dark fantasy definitely it's not grim dark but it's dark fantasy dark sci-fi mm. and there's a lot of bloodshed there's a lot of fighting and there's a lot of um you know grittiness to them as well um and the whole thing sort of is looking at what do we lose when we try and sort of cut off the the flaws in our characters and things? Actually, do we make ourselves more flawed by doing that because those flaws balance things? So, you know, it's pretty, pretty deep stuff behind the fantasy. Yeah. Um, but he's really, really good at balancing his dark moments with these little moments of, of light and humanity, these feel-good moments. Um, and one of them was obviously these two nuns having their... their somewhat loud affair on the side <laughs> yeah uh, I completely agree and and also to be honest seeing life just outside of the main characters I think is something that really really matters yeah I have to say I've found with the the more recent trend of writing young adult fiction um, in a very linear fashion without subplot has it, this is the thing that's t largely turned me off young adult and means that I, I really don't read very much of it at all anymore mm. um, is because it's cut out a lot of these moments of humanity because a lot of them can't be in the main plot necessarily so they used to go to the side characters and that fleshed it out and gave you a much richer reading experience. Mm. And without that, I don't find it's enough for me personally. So, you know, when you think, oh, well, it's not necessary to the plot, I'm going to get rid of it. Yeah, it might not be necessary to the plot, but is it necessary to the book? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, it... <laughs> It's one of those, actually, weirdly enough, it's something that I've noticed in animation at the moment as well, is the way that it's been streamlined in order to get in as much as possible. Yeah. And I found that because of that, now I was never, I'm never a big fan of, of endless um, filler episodes, um, but writing something which is also completely streamlined to the point that you don't actually get anything which isn't entirely relevant to the plot and you even rush ahead in order to get to the plot bits like i was watching um i've been watching a a, a series called yasha hime which is a sequel to inuyasha 
um, where in one of the most recent things we've had this really fateful encounter between one of the characters and her old master and the encounter the whole episode literally begins with the master with both of them already having met up it's yeah. just them the episode literally begins with the master up on a cliff above them um the character moraha already drawn her sword saying i guess i should explain what's happening to her comrades and i was like did i miss an episode um and by the end not to oh, sorry spoilers but by the end the character gets killed um and it's meant to be this really emotional and impactful kind of scene um as the two kind of have to sort out the very troubled relationship they've had with one another um but the fact that ultimately they did they did care about each other and it's not because we've had none of that build up we've had none of the the build up of the character it's just been this straight let's get to the plot bit and yeah i don't i don't agree with it at all when you cut out things like this um little bits with side characters um little kind of plot bits which humanize things and just get straight to the battle you lose something yeah absolutely um okay uh also another another way you can add feel good moments you have a main character who the audience can't help rooting for everyone starts pulling for them um, mm. i've got a good example of this a bit for in a moment but um Basically, it, they might even be a little bit of a dig, but you can't help but be taken in by their, their gumption, their, their courage, their fortitude or whatever. You can't help thinking, well, if that exists in that person, then maybe the human race is, is better than I thought it was kind yeah. of thing. Um, and maybe this person gets everyone in, in, in the series or in the book or whatever pulling for them as well. Not in the case of, well, we think they're the best person ever, but in the sense of, oh, no, they're facing terrible odds. We can't help but want to support this person. Yeah. Um, weirdly, I mean, initially Daenerys kind of had that draw because she started out amazingly disadvantaged. Yeah. And then through, I mean, ultimately through conquest, through conquest and colonisation, she got people behind her. But she also did it using some very clever political tactics as well. And because she was accomplishing things so cleverly, you couldn't help but root for her, which is why it came such a shock to people later on, um, if they were just watching the series, that suddenly we had the rise of the Mad Queen kind of thing. Yeah. Um, there are other examples as well. Uh, the final one, the backdrop for the story is a big holiday. So if you <laughs> set something at Christmas, for example, then you've got a good chance of having lots of opportunities for feel-good moments. Yes. You've got to be careful you don't breach over into sentimentality. It's a bit like Valentine's Day or um, Independence Day or, or Halloween or whatever. Um, you've got something that there's something there that will connect people to it because there will be a big group of people who are already predisposed to loving that particular holiday they've got fond childhood memories of it yeah um, it's something they celebrate every year with their own children with their own friends or what have you it's like you can't have a hallmark film not at christmas if that makes sense no the, the, 
that it's a stable. <laughs> and, and as we've mentioned, Madeline and I like to like to find a schmaltzy and stupid Christmas film to buddy watch at Christmas, usually with the aim of taking the piss out of it. But I would say it's fair that fair to say that we actually usually end up quite enjoying it as well. The process. You know what? I I will unironically watch those kinds of films and I will get annoyed with them frequently um but I I, I still watch them <laughs> it's like we watched a castle for Christmas <laughs> this year just gone and it is a stupid film um but Carrie Elwes as <laughs> as the duke the owner of the castle absolutely stole the entire thing um, but also, there were so many feel-good human moments in there that didn't tip over into sentimentality that kind of carried the film. So, as stupid as it was, and there were a few like glaring plot holes, we still kind of went, actually, I'm enjoying this. <laughs> there, there were some incredible plot holes, like the point where they, they set up a character and... And then, then forgot about them. We never saw them again. To forget. We were waiting for this character to turn up and cause trouble, and they never appeared again. We, we were so confused. It was. It, and the thing was, it was kind of really badly sort of moustache villainy twirl, moustache twirly villain. Um, this signalled that this character was going to be the main antagonist, and and by the time we got to the end of the film, we were like, did, we're like, did they forget about that did dude? They, did it, it, yeah, as long as they just completely forgot that they'd set up a villain, and <laughs> it just kind of got on with the, <laughs> They're like, oh well, let's just go for the feel good stuff, and I was like, now hold on a second. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So. I'm going to quickly go through a few examples. Um, we've obviously spoken about some on the way, but I've picked some that are generally quite bleak here. Mm -hmm. um, I will also mention Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which is one of the most depressing bleak. books I've ever read. And it was, a, it was a film that I watched with Alan and both of us got to the end and went, well, I don't feel like doing much of anything, like maybe ever again kind of thing. <laughs> but even with The Road, as depressing as it is, and it's a dystopian film with an ending where it is a case of, no, there is no hope. That That is how it ends. There's no hope. Mm. It still has those moments of humanity. Otherwise, I'd have got bored. We'd have stopped watching it. I would have put the book down kind of thing. Yeah. So it may not be repeatable. It's not somewhere you go back to again and again. Or I wouldn't. Um but it had the moments of the father and son interacting together, their minor wins, the way they, they relied on each other, mm. that, that maybe not have given you the warm fuzzies considering the subject matter of the film, but it did keep you going. Yeah. Um, I'm going to mention The Martian, uh, the film, but also mm -hmm. the book as well. The, the main character, Mark Watney, is kind of a douchebag, <laughs> but he is stranded on Mars and he uses incredible fortitude and uh, a courage of mind and intelligence in order to survive. And yeah. it's just, it's a series of problems. It's an adventure story. It, it is Robinson Crusoe in space, but without all the horrible racist overtones. Um, and it, it, in the end, you have him, he kind of unites all the different space uh, programs on earth in order for people to get him back from mars because he's going to die he what well, his game is is one of extending 
the amount of time he can survive but it's yeah. not going to be forever because things go wrong and it's great it, it, it is a classic example of a main character who despite personal flaws gets everybody pulling for him and it yeah. makes you think that maybe there's some greatness in the human race no matter what our flaws are as a species mm. yeah i completely agree um I think also there's an element of the fact that there's humour. Yeah. Coming yeah, they through could have made it that. really kind of like, I'm stuck here and sits and wallows and is really kind of sorry for himself about it. And it <laughs> but instead he has one sort of, oh, fuck moment and, and then sort of just gets on with things. Yeah. Um and I think that that is one of the big selling points. It's quite interesting because um, Andy Weir, who wrote the book, you know, when he was writing it, he was writing it for a very, very specific audience of what he deemed to be people who wanted very, very accurate science. Yeah. Um, and he put a lot of effort into the science for this book. Like, he if you just look into half of the things he did, yeah. you'd be amazed. He put a lot of effort into it and he thought, right, that's that's the only thing that people are going to care about. And ultimately, the thing which has made it such a successful book for the casual reader is that feel-good element. Yeah, absolutely. Because most people will look at the science and go, eh, you know, it's well explained. And if you enjoy the science like I do, then maybe you'll dive into it. But if you don't, you probably skim a little bit over those bits, but it doesn't matter because it is this amazing adventure story as well with the feel-good moments. And every time he succeeds, you're there with him. You know, you're yeah. celebrating. I think it's Absolutely. really interesting. And when Madeline says, yeah, he did an incredible amount with the science and getting it accurate, to the point where astronauts now have the Martian as required reading. I, I kid you not, it is required reading for anyone who joins joins the NASA space program. <laughs> that's brilliant I did not know that yeah so um, that's amazing I think yeah. um, on to slightly less accurate science fiction <laughs> um, Independence Day which is probably a tiny bit aged now but it is a really feel good film um, yeah. I don't think you can kind of deny that and yes it if you look at its source material, its source material is War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Mm. And most people probably wouldn't sit and read H.G. Wells or watch the original sort of War of the Worlds as an adaptation with um, half as much enthusiasm as they would find for Independence Day. Yeah. And again, you know, H.G. Wells was writing a very serious story about colonization of the british of the in, of of india by by britain that would that was you know the, the martians were his metaphor for that that's what he was commenting on yeah um and you know it's a great sci-fi story in its own right i it's one of my favorites but i can understand why other people may not find it as accessible mm. um independence day is littered with these feel-good moments and it's an ensemble piece you don't have just one person being the hero being the main guy no and everyone gets their own little sort of moments of humanity their moments of of lightness in, in what should be overwhelming odds i mean they're so technologically advanced the aliens that and and they're, they're here to wipe us out there there is no two ways about it we should not be able to win 
Yeah. And it is that classic, a lost cause, and yet you fight anyway, and somehow you prevail. That's incredibly potent as a mixture. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose it's little things like you have the, you, you've got Jeff Goldblum's character, you know, the eccentric scientist. <laughs> um, and he does it very well. But his father is, you know, his father is a rabbi, I believe. And there's they are literally all sheltering and there is nothing to do but pray. And yeah. despite the fact that he is very clearly of a specific Jewish faith, Mm -hmm. He's, he forms a prayer circle and there are other people and he sees they're scared and he says, no, 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 come in, come in, this is for everyone, come come and pray with us kind of thing. Yeah. And it's that sort of inclusiveness, that sort of at the moment when things are at their worst, literally the only thing you can do is pray because your son's off doing the only thing that might save you, but it's, you know, a one in a million shot kind of thing. Yeah. Instead of sitting there and being scared, instead of going, you know, you're not part of our faith, you sort yourself out, pray to your own God. No, come in, this is for everyone. Every, you know, Allah cares about everybody kind of thing. Yeah. That sort of humanity. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, it's it's one of those things where the, the, the feel-good factor of ultimately people will band together, I think, will never go out of fashion. Yeah. Um, particularly during times of great warfare where we feel very divided. Weirdly enough, it's like that weird... Um, uh, uh, they actually do it in uh, in the Ghostbusters series. Sorry, a series. You know, in the in the Ghostbusters films. Um, where, you know, the, the sort of the general kind of bad feeling across New York is fueling this this monster and yet when everyone starts singing together oh you, you know mean ghostbusters 2 when the, yeah ghostbusters 2 yeah the, the goo in the sewers and that and it basically yeah. it's ectoplasm that responds to emotive so they play feel-good tunes and everybody sings along yeah and everybody sings along yeah um which i think is is awesome that, that that's actually a really nice sort of touching moment um and I think it's it's also one of those things which is why people like it because it reminds us of our basic humanity, like the fact that during the World War you had people, um, you know, they stopped, they had the Armistice Day, you know? Um, it's a reminder of, of the fact that people do do this and people do come together and actually naturally we're not really made to just hate one another. No. No, we're not. Um, the Deathly Hallows. Obviously, I could mention lots of little human moments across the Harry Potter series, but the Deathly mm. Hallows had the potential to be an incredibly bleak book and film. Yes. <laughs> Two films. But things like Hermione and Harry at Harry's parents' grave and Hermione conjuring a wreath. Yes. And Hermione being sad because Ron's gone, and this only happens in the film, I think, but Harry sort of pulling her up to dance the radio. It's those yeah. moments of, of friendship. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, they they are kind of what make part of the story. To be honest, most of Harry Potter wouldn't be bearable if you didn't have that enduring friendship. No, throughout it, really it. wouldn't. Uh, and this is one where I think people are going to go, what? <laughs> um, but the Hunger Games, um, the Hunger Games, if you think about it, 
is horrible not just the concept of the hunger games but the entire trilogy the way it's done mm. yes it's gripping but i wonder how many people would have kept reading or would have kept watching if it didn't include those moments of humanity so maybe some people are irritated by particularly in the books the inclusion of the songs and things but actually the fact that people can still sing in those conditions the fact that um despite the fact that everyone's being pitted against each other and yet Katniss forms a, a a friendship as well as a partnership with a girl who reminds her of her younger sister all mm. those tiny things that say no matter what the circumstances no matter what we're being forced to do we can be better than this even if only for a moment yeah those little bits of humanity are important her friendship with her stylist you know someone yes. she should probably hate but you know he sees something in her and she they they come to an understanding to the point he sees something in her to the point where he's willing to die for it and he does yeah and it's you know I, th I guess this is where you can go yes in dystopian fiction and in various other things like for example the walking dead um you can throw in these human moments that make people relax and make them go oh it's not so bad and then you can turn it into a double-edged sword by kind of taking it back a little bit as well yeah um, you've got to be careful yeah, I mean, doing that but you, you do you do i mean like because i watched some of the walking dead and again this is something i do not like zombie fiction hate it really really hate it <laughs> and yet i watched the walking dead um and it was it was for that humanity and it was for that humor i mean there's there's a bit in the walking dead you know like that first episode where you've got rick he's caught in the in the tank he's surrounded and then you just get this sort of through the radio and you just get glenn going hey you the idiot in the tank you comfy in there and I thought, that's a great way of <laughs> yeah. endearing us to this character yeah definitely um and i think where the walking dead has now god how many seasons is it nine where it started to run out of steam if for me personally is that you get less of those moments or they're taken back too many times yeah i would agree so i'm less engaged with the story so you know you if you're going to have bleakness you must have something to to complement it to contrast it with yeah it's like um twilight <laughs> again i'm t i feel like i'm taking someone's name in vain but twilight is not going to be everybody's cup of tea it in some ways it shouldn't be mine because it is basically a love story it's basically paranormal romance mm. but it does so much in terms of looking at relationships between characters and not just the romance itself because the romance itself i'm like nah don't really care about that at all <laughs> but the, the journey um, of the characters and the little friendships and things and the fact that that Bella kind of forms a friendship with every single member of the Cullen family independently mm. that that is interesting that's that's again feel good moments so yeah yeah completely agree okay you've got to love that I've actually not written a specific title no down this one. <laughs> Stephen King um yeah Stephen King Stephen King has written some of the some of the most bleak short stories that I've ever read, um, and some of his other stuff can be pretty bleak. You can, his kill count. I mean, people go on about George R. R. Martin, but 
you're reading Stephen King, there's a good chance that two thirds of the characters you like are going to be dead by the end of the book. Well, it is, for instance, whenever I think of, of Stephen King, well, you know, obviously I think of Stephen King, um, lots of things come to mind. But I, I think about Salem's Lot, right? And when I started, survive. <laughs> when I was reading Salem's Lot, I was like, oh, shit, am I going to be able to remember who's turned into a vampire and who isn't? And, you know, by the end, it didn't matter because they were all vampires. It was easier to count who wasn't a vampire by the end than try to remember who was. Because everybody, all of them, every single one of them. And and again, with The Stand, obviously he kills off millions of people in that. And then he kills off the characters you really like in that as well. But it's the tiny moments of humanity that actually keep you reading. Because normally I'm with dystopian fiction or apocalyptic fiction... I like the moments when it's all going to shit at the beginning and then after that I can take it or leave it depending on what the author does with the story. I always read the stand all the way through um, because I care what the characters are doing because he forms these these friendships between characters that are, are unlikely and yet unbreakable. Yeah. And he has these moments where you've got, for example, in the stand you have Stu Redman and Glenn Bateman a, te- a Texan who worked in a calculator factory and a, a retired um, sociology professor sitting, sharing beer through the night, talking about how they're going to form a new government is the most unlikely conversation imaginable. Yeah. And it's it's really, really, it's both funny and poignant and you, you cannot help but be engaged with it. Yeah. And again, sort of going back to, to Salem's Lot, just because um, there's there's a version of Salem's Lot where you actually get a really interesting um, introduction by Stephen King himself, uh, talking about, you know, his experiences of reading Dracula um, and kind of some of the ideas of Salem's Lot. And one thing that he really, really does like that you can see coming through when he's talking about this is um this love for the kind of the the sort of the people who band together yeah um and that's really obvious in his fiction it's really really obvious in what he writes and quite often it's an unlikely band as well yeah i mean they're the best kind really aren't they but yeah but he takes it to next level and it's you know, he has these themes and things. This this is where we're again talking about following an author across genre, no matter what he writes, because the chances are you're going to like at least some of it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, final example. And the lighter example is that the I've finished Hawkeye now. Oh, okay. Um, and I wouldn't say that that was bleak at all, really, um, or anything like that. But what it does very well and what kept me more interested than, I'm very sorry, but Falcon and Winter Soldier. It was a bit hit and miss for me, mm-hmm. personally. I think Hawkeye did much better at getting in some of the human moments, the the lighter moments, the things that keep you engaged and make you want to keep going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. Um, one of the things I really liked about Hawkeye was that you had that whole thing with the with the LARPers, right? Yes. And the thing I really liked is that it could have just been something which was really stupid um, and just completely mocked. 
and yeah, they 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 have a little laugh about it. But you know what? Hawkeye actually enjoys himself at the end there. Yeah, you can see him having see fun. <laughs> he starts off. It's like, oh god, this is. I just want to get home. I just want to get home. Go away. Give me my stuff back. And then by the end, it's kind of like. Okay, this is actually kind of cool. I see why you do it. <laughs> yeah, he, he's actually... You can see him actually really genuinely enjoying himself um, when he's sort of doing the, the fake battles and stuff like that. Yeah. And I don't know whether that was just the actor just <laughs> really having a good time or not. But um, for me, it was one of those very human moments. And just also, I think, um, you know, his whole interactions with Kate... Um, very very human as well and it's i think it's probably one of the reasons that i've really enjoyed the hawkeye series as in the comics um over time is because we really do get to have that great sense of humanity with him because he is quite literally the most human of of the entire lot yeah yeah definitely so in conclusion guys (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what we're saying is that you can't underestimate the power of it and they can be such tiny little scenes they can be a throwaway line here and there mm. they can be a tiny paragraph where you know two characters enjoy a meal together um don't yeah. assume that because it doesn't directly add to the main plot that it's not important because those things those those tiny warm moments are the things that will keep more readers coming back to you yeah no i completely agree um no one to be honest if you're constantly having to do with action people will get bored very very fast yeah Um, because it's that question of okay but what are they fighting for yeah yeah absolutely um and i think you know, I don't. I really don't want to pick on literary fiction, but I think sometimes when literary fiction works for me, it's because it manages to keep a lot of the humanity, even if it delivers it in a literary style. Whereas when it yeah. doesn't work for me, it's because it has streamlined everything to the point where yes, it's this great sleek shark swimming through the literary waters, but there's there's nothing there to get hold of. So why would I want to? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um. And I think ultimately that's also, you know, there's a reason why, and I am not, I'm not throwing shade on literary fiction, but there is a reason why it, it doesn't actually have that wide of a readership. Because the casual reader, for the most part, doesn't tend to enjoy it. Yeah. And perhaps now we know why. And perhaps that's why. <laughs> yes. Or well, part of the reason anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We'd never say we have all the answers, but um, no, this but is definitely, t- you know, sprinkle sprinkle your manuscript with human moments and see what happens. <laughs> We're back to the cooking metaphors. We are. Yes. Well, I suppose you could sprinkle, sprinkle other things like yes. glitter. Or... <laughs> don't sprinkle glitter into your food, guys. Please, for the love of God, don't did sprinkle glitter that? into your food. No, that? but. <laughs> But I was just making sure, just in case anyone's like, well, Jules Ironside told me to... (laughs) We didn't, she didn't. (laughs) 
it is time for us to go and say goodbye but before we do um we do have our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and jules i believe that this one is on you yes um this is weirdly appropriate for this i've been reading a series of graphic novels which is very unusual for me because i find graphic novels difficult to read Mm -hmm. um but i've kind of mainlined these since christmas and that's sunstone by stepan sedgick and if i've got the name wrong there i'm very sorry but you know (laughs) um basically it it's a love story or a series of love stories which again is an unlikely thing for me to be reading however it's really once again it's slice of life and it has these human moments in and Mm. the whole premise behind sunstone um i may as well just say this from the start the word sunstone in this relation uh is actually a safe word used between a couple experimenting with bdsm right but the, the whole point of this is not just the smut i mean i'm sure the smut is really like a big draw for a lot of people <laughs> but it's actually a really good story it's very sweet um and it's it kind of really humanizes an aspect of of sex and relationships and love and things that that i think gets kind of a bad rap hmm. um, because people don't understand and nobody feels really comfortable just openly talking about it yeah and it does it in a way that, again, really humanises it. I don't think I've ever seen anything do it in quite the same way. Um, so all those people who are so incensed by, say, Fifty Shades of Grey saying it's a bad relationship, well, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, or, you know, that's not how BDSM is. Again, yeah, comparing the two, that is absolutely right. This this is all about um consent not working out your issues on somebody else Mm. um it's beautiful art um both both of the art well it's a husband sorry i'm not explaining this very well the artist Mm -hmm. um his wife also does art in a very similar vein and has her own comic book series um and they what i love about it is that characters from her series will sort of randomly pop up in his series and vice versa okay <laughs> so that's they're clearly cool. writing the shared universe <laughs> but completely separate stories um and you know i'm a total nerd for anything like that so that's really cool and it's weirdly compelling it, it and it is basically romance it is basically romance and so that shouldn't grab me um and to be honest neither should sort of just a depiction of bdsm that shouldn't grab me but somehow the conglomeration of the whole and the sort of like let's look at things let's look at consent let's look at what this really means and let's look at does it really matter what anybody else thinks as long as everybody is acting in good faith and out of genuine affection and respect and it's kind of like yeah okay you've got a lot of really good points here um it's it's a very very good series i highly recommend it Okay. All right. That's a really interesting one from you. Yes. Um, I am very curious. I, I might I might have a little gander. Oh, and I should say that the main the main love story is um, female female. Oh, okay. So um, it's very LGBTQA all the way through the entire series so far. I mean, there's seven books are out now, and apparently there's another thirteen forthcoming. <laughs> I 
okay, certainly so don't feel as bad about Harker and Black Sword now. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not going to be short on material there. <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening. And we will catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.